When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Welcome back, everybody. It is Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's having a great day. My next guest, you know him from the Ozzy Osbourne band, Quiet Riot, Whitesnake. Also other bands such as Dio, Blue Oyster Cult, Jeff Tate's version of Queensryche, and currently the Guess Who. But also let's not forget the project back in, back in 1986, called Mars, which is one of my personal favorite albums when I was growing up. I'd like to welcome in Rudy Sarzo. How you doing, Rudy? Hey, great to be on your show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for doing this. I've been a fan of yours ever since I saw the Come On, Feel the Noise video when I was a kid growing up, and I was just like, who's that bass player who keeps doing that thing with his hand and flipping his hand over? And uh, it's great to speak with you. Great to speak with you, too. Well, we always ask the first question every time we have a first-time guest on the podcast, and that is the essence of the show. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a band, a performance, a song, or an album, that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Uh, For me, basically, it was uh, when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan back in 1964. That was... uh, yeah, I think that's you know I, I've had this conversation with musicians of my uh, of my generation, and that's the moment we all share. That, that that's what did it for us. It's amazing that had so much influence on so many people. You know, I mean, it was it was a huge moment for music, and the Beatles laid the groundwork, the platform for what was yet to come. 
Yeah, but also they had a great marketing tool, which was uh, television at a time where Ed Sullivan Show had the major share of the market. So it was like, you know, one of those things that, uh, you know, all kids of that generation, most of them, were actually exposed to it at, at the same time. You know, something that it's very rare now because there's so many options for viewers. And uh, but back in the day, it's all of a show. That was that was it. Everybody watched that on Sunday night, you know. So that was a great marketing tool, and it was not that much different from when uh, when Elvis performed, you know, just a few years before. And uh, it, it had basically the the uh, the same impact. But you know, Elvis being a solo artist was a little bit more difficult to to uh, to model uh, because uh, you know it took a certain talent. Now, if you were a kid and you say, wait a minute, if I just learn how to play one of those instruments, you know, whether it be a bass guitar or, or, or the drums, I can be in a band. You know, being an Elvis, a solo artist, it's, it's totally different than being a band musician, you know. And because you're a team player and you're relying on not only yourself, but the other, you know, the other band members to actually create one full, uh, uh, you know, vision, vision. You know, when you become as a band, whereas a solo artist is, it's very different. It's much more difficult. Absolutely, um, and I really want to dive into that with you too, because you know, with your experience in music and playing with different bands, it's a, there's a lot of questions I'd like to ask you on the different dynamics you know that each band has and each personality has. But before we get into that. You you mentioned the Beatles, Ed Sullivan show. So where did it go from there? You know where where did it go from watching them on that Sunday night to you wanting to pick up a bass and play? Oh, I don't know. It's uh, I mean I do know, but I I, I I do not know where where to begin. So let, let me let me pick up a little slice of it. I would say that my generation, you know, for every one out of ten of us. And I'm being very uh, optimistic here. We're actually able to sustain the vision of what they imagine they could be in the Beatles' shoes. And by that, I you know, it's as a kid, I did not even think about the 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 global cultural impact that they were going to have the Beatles, you know, in that generation uh, on. On teenagers, I, I just thought of it like, okay, girls like these guys. I want girls to like me, so I'm going to be like these guys. It was a very simple formula. <laughs> and, uh, and But, you know, once you dive into it, then you really realize, oh, boy, you know, this is going to take not only time, but a lot of effort, you know, and concentration. And then you just fall in love with being a musician, you know, just what – you know, making music, you fall in love, you, you start, you realize, wait a minute, these guys are actually musicians and, and they write all these incredible songs and you just dive deeper and deeper into like, you know, eventually, like in my case, I've been married for over 35 years. So it's, I don't do it because I, I do it because of one girl, <laughs> that's my wife, <laughs> you know, but so it's all for the love of music. You know, you really, really fall in love with music. Was, the moment you saw the Beatles, the moment, you know, obviously you wanted to be in a band, you wanted to pick up an instrument. Was that also the moment that you wanted to get up on stage? Because there's the evolution of the artist, right? I mean, first you hear the music and you want to play it. Then you want to play it. Then you want to perform it. 
So was it all wrapped in one or was there other artists that said, hey, you know what? I want to play in front of people. Was there a, a concert, a performance that you saw in person that led you to that? That's a good question. And uh, actually, this is pretty much the, the way it went down with, I would, I would say, most kids of my generation. Uh, everything swing and earlier forms of music swing jazz it's been uh, masses acceptance of the musical style it's due to its danceability beat beat like if we even when we go back to American bandstand you know and they would rate a record it was always about can you dance to it you know can you you know it's the beat of the music and by that I'm saying that so what happened was we, you know, we were, we were influenced by the Beatles to start a band. But once it came down to it, the realization was that you, as a musician, you were just going to be a giant jukebox. That's it. You were hired as a musician. If you really wanted to start working and really getting down to your craft, you're going to have to get gigs. In order to get gigs, you're going to have to play dances. There were, you know, there was no such thing. I mean, even the Beatles, you know, they were basically a, providing the same service as a dance band back in the cavern. That's what, or even at the in Hamburg at the Star Club, they just, you know, they, you were hired to make people dance. We didn't have, you know, really the DJs. It was either a jukebox or a live band at a place, and it was about dancing. Uh, if you listen to the first eight Beatle records, their non-original music was uh, a lot of dance stuff, you know, a lot of uh, Motown, you know, and uh, some of the uh, more danceable beat-oriented, uh, you know, tunes, Chuck Berry stuff, you know, things like that. And uh, it wasn't until like this, the rubber soul that they start experimenting and not becoming really an R&B or a dance band influence, you know, uh, writers, composers. And that broke the whole thing, you know, went from people going to places to watch bands so they can dance to all of a sudden you got concerts. People don't dance in concerts. That's why it's called a concert, you know. And uh, the music started changing and so did the genre. You know, people start coming to, you know, either to experience things, some of them will get high watching the band or, you know, listening to the band, basically, and big drum solos and all that stuff. So it really stopped being a dance-oriented medium. Uh, but growing up, and especially growing up in Miami, my services as a musician or as a band member was to be in a band that made people dance and that's how you got gigs and that's why I got fed up when I left Florida because by, by the time disco came in see we went from being a top 40 uh, generation to all of a sudden in Florida in early 70s it was all about disco and I wanted to be in a rock band I wanted to be a rock musician you know? and by then we were getting away from from performing in clubs uh dance music we started you know my my older kids that were seriously pursuing a musical career playing in clubs we from we we started traveling from miami up to fort lauderdale they uh, uh 
from Bay County to, to Davie. And that's where more a less Latino uh, audience and more of the Anglo or even tourists that will come up to Fort Lauderdale and stuff like that. We're, you know, and there, there we could actually play top 40, which was not, was less dance oriented. You know, you, you could, as long as it was on the radio and we took advantage of a lot of the, the, you know, songs by, you know, Led Zeppelin or, or, or Deep Purple, the Stones, you know, more of the, more rock, uh, bands, you know, getting on top 40 with singles. So we could, you know, we could add that and, and actually play, play rock. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, can you, you know, the, the American bandstand and, you know, can you dance to this, you know, and, and here you are playing the bass, which is with the drums, keeping the beat of the song, you know, and, and, and I, I think there's a correlation for how you viewed music back then to the instrument that you played. Yeah, well, I, I, I understood the fundamentals and not only just musically and theoretically, but also business-wise. You know, and uh, and once you understand it, you embrace it. You just get 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 into it because you have to get into it. You know, you can't phone it in. You know, you have to really tap into that element of the music. You know, that's gonna make uh, make you likable, and people can. And, you know, at the end of the day, you just you you're playing for yourself, or you're playing for everybody else. So I choose to play for everybody else. And then when, when I'm at home, just by myself or, you know, with my family, I play, I play the stuff that is for me. It's, it's, it's my for me time, you know. Late 70s, you, you move from Florida to California. You're in this band, Quiet Riot. You meet Randy Rhodes. In your book, Off the Rails, Aboard the Crazy Train and the Blizzard of Oz, you talk about the friendship that you developed with Randy Rhodes. And what I gathered from what I read was here you are, you know, being, you know, being friends with Randy Rhodes, who's this very supportive and loyal friend. And then you're in this band with him after quiet riot, the Ozzy Osbourne band with Ozzy Osbourne. And he's so unpredictable and he's so crazy, you know? I mean, that's the reputation of Ozzy. You have, like, this stable relationship with, with Randy, but you're in, like, this circus of craziness. How, how you know, you, and you talk about different personalities and being in a band. How, how did you manage your, your way through all that um, while you were in, in, in the Ozzy Osbourne band with Randy Rhodes? Well, by the time that I had joined the band, Oz, uh, Randy had been living with Ozzy in England uh, for almost two years by then. You know, they had uh, recorded two albums, Blizzard of Oz, Dyrus and Madman. They had, you know, put the band together. You know, it was, it took a while. You know, I think Randy joined, actually left in 79 to join Ozzy, late 79. So it was there 80, 80, 80 and portion of 81, you know, so almost, you know, either a year and a half, almost two years. So he got to know Ozzy really, really, really well, you know, to like, um, so by the time that I joined the band, uh, I, I had never met anybody like Ozzy before. And it was, it was Randy that explained to me this, this is how he, this is how he is. It's nothing to do with you. Don't take it personal. This is how he is. And 
So he helped me immensely to really uh, uh, survive that period of getting to know Ozzy, you know, what, he, what it's all about, you know. Because it was, it was, you know, of course, you know, you, you have the, the sober Ozzy, you know, which really was sober, you know, in a few occasions. And uh, that's basically a whole different different uh, uh, individual than when he when he was drinking, you know, and and Sharon was there to actually, uh, I would say, I would say intervene. There was an intervention basically nightly, you know, in the bus, you know, trying to keep him to keep him, uh, you know, from going off the deep end, you know, drinking, you know. And uh, yeah, we were all traveling in the same bus and staying in the same hotels. And of course, not the same room, but <laughs> the same hotels. And so we spent a lot of time together. I I lived at Sharon's house, you know, uh, her family's home that way. And she lived there with Ozzy. You know, she had her, you know, we had bungalows. And uh, so I I spent not only time with them on tour, but also at home, you know. I imagine that experience, you know, because you have been in a lot of different bands and every band has their own dynamic and there's a lot of different personalities within the bands, you know, I mean, and each one is different. I imagine that experience with Ozzy helped you deal with personalities and that, that maybe aren't always compromising or maybe are unpredictable that had to, yeah, it, it gave me a primer basically. Uh, you know, there's, all, all types of cra- you know there there's all, there's not only one type of crazy there's, there's many different types of crazy that is a very you true know? statement <laughs> yeah and I, I'm just trying to find a politically correct way of saying it but uh, you know it's it's so it's just when you think you've experienced everything something else comes along that takes it somewhere else and just adds to the whole experience you know but at the at the very beginning. My my gut reaction was to run away from it, and through the years, you know, from reading self improving improvement books and such, and you know, follow listening to you know either Napoleon Hill or or Tony Robbins or anything, you know, any of those life coaches, I've I've learned to. Uh, not only navigate the situation, but also confront it, not in a, in a confrontational way, but kind of like deal with it rather than to run away from it. Because that is to me running away from it. it I've, I've come to realize it's not the solution because then you keep running away from it all your life because there's going to be situations. You cannot run away from every single, single situation, you know, that's interesting because you know what is the process for you when you do join a different band and you're playing with different musicians do you remain who you are i mean you always are going to be who you are but do you do you adapt to the different personalities or do you just okay, be rudy yeah, yeah and I, I, you know i've i've adapted to a lot of things because it's always been part of my my philosophy you know adaptations is, is it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's significant to every, every creature for survival. You know, in order, in order for, from the amoeba to the human being to survive, you have to adapt. 
to all situations and environments and changes, you know, changes, uh, whether they're, uh, uh, climate changes or, or, or cultural changes or whatever, you have to learn how to adapt to things, you know, and uh, in order to survive, you know, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of species that have not gone through that period of adaptation and have not survived, you know, so that's been, you know, business-wise has been, or, and, and even, you know, when, when my family moved in from Cuba to the United States, I had to adapt to just about everything from even my name change, you know? So it's, uh, you know, and there's certain things that you as a human being, you retain while you adapt. It means that you're adapting. Sometimes you're not really changing, you're just adapting and embracing certain things while maintaining uh, fundamentals of who you are uh, intact. You know, you, you keep them at the core, not at the surface. I imagine that's not always easy, too. Has there ever been a moment where you've been asked to be a part of something and you felt it was maybe too much for you to adapt to? Oh, no. No. No, no, I've never been asked, so I wouldn't even have a reference to it. Uh, no, not really. No, I, I, I cannot even imagine any, any situation like that. Going back to the period, you know, with Ozzy and Randy, obviously, you know, Randy passes away and you leave the band and join Quiet Riot. The next time you see Ozzy is at the U.S. Festival in 1983. And no, actually, I didn't, I didn't see him at the festival. I heard him perform because I, as we were leaving, we, I, we came on, then Motley Crue came on, right. and maybe another band, and then, and then Ozzy. And by then, we had to leave... Uh, to go to the airport to get back on the road again. Well, what I yeah, well, what I meant, Ozzy's part of the bill, and Quiet yeah. Riot is the band that you were originally in with Randy. How surreal was that to be playing in front of all those people in the band that you originally were in when you moved to California with Ozzy on the bill? Yeah, you know, I would say it's kind of like winning the Super Bowl. You just you just won the Super Bowl and. That's what you think about. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> There's no much room to get philosophical. You just in the moment of, uh, of uh, you know, for, from from a week before the, the Out Festival. Not even think, I didn't even know that w- that there was an Out Festival to actually getting the gig because they had to find a, another band to uh, to take the place of Joe Walsh, who was moved from Metal Day over to the following day, which was more of the uh, of the pop day, you know, and here we are that we're playing and I'm like, okay, we just did this. Now we got to get back to the airport and, and, and get to the next gig. That, that, that was it. That's, that's my range of emotions at the time. But after that though, I mean, that was a big day for hard rock and heavy metal back then. Yes. I mean, and things just kind of blew up after that. What was that experience like from, you know, because Quiet Riot was gaining traction with Come On, Feel the Noise and Metal Health, and you guys open up the U.S. Festival, and then all of a sudden, heavy metal, hard rock is all over the radio. It blows up with the younger audience. Now, you know, actually, no, what happened is this, uh, because I was there, and I recall it very clearly. It was MTV. Uh, there wasn't, you know, that there was an Oz Festival before 
the year before. Yes. Nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about the 82 Fox Festival. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, the 83, because it coincided with MTV exploding that same year, you know, with some of the bands that actually got to perform at the Fox Festival. Not just on that day, on the metal day, but also, you know, the, the, the other shows. You know, the, uh, because we were, metal day was day two. Then you had day one, which is more new wave punk. And then three was more like Bowie and Stevie Nicks, you know, bands like that. But how, you know, after that day with MTV, because MTV played a huge part in the rise of that music yeah. back then. Oh, no. I mean, I would say MTV was 99.9% of the success of what happened in the, in the, to the eighties bands without MTV. Nah, no, I mean, it's, it's, uh, and I was there. I mean, I, I saw the numbers. I, I, well, you know what a difference it was when Come On, Feel the Noise was played on MTV rather than Bang Your Head, the, uh, which was the first video. It didn't have the same impact, you know. Uh, Come On, Feel the Noise, I guess, being the type of song that at the time, people, could, everybody was ready for a song like that. And uh, Come On, uh, Bang Your Head might have been a little bit too heavy for that transition from New Wave into more of a melodic metal going back to your original statement about what hooked you you talk about the ed sullivan show and the connection that it had with you and many other musicians can you compare that moment to mtv and the way mtv was our our ed sullivan as a matter of fact there was no ed sullivan at the time so we you know saturday night live was as close as it came to exposing you know new bands because I imagine, you know, people listen with their ears and also with their eyes. And having that that infrastructure back then where you could put a song on MTV, the younger generation, the young rock fans would gravitate towards it and just lift this music into superstardom. It had to be amazing. Yeah, it was. Uh, and then it, needed, it, needed, it was very competitive, though. It became incredibly competitive. By the time we came back with the following record, there were so many bands on MTV, you know, rock bands on MTV that we were competing with lots, lots more than we had when we first came out. You made a statement as we were talking in the beginning about how the Ed Sullivan, you know, was the place to go for to, to see new acts every Sunday. And now we're talking about MTV with, with the infrastructure of getting a song on MTV and having them promote it. Uh, you know, rock radio before MTV more or less, you know, played what they wanted, but MTV started breaking bands. Rock radio started to follow what MTV was doing. We're in the present day in 2020, and you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of accessibility. There's a lot of different platforms to get your music out to people and for people to absorb your music. Do you think having too many platforms is a detriment to new rock music and getting it out to the people? Yeah, I think it dilutes the focus. I, uh, back, you know, I grew up with record stores and it was that one guy behind the counter who I trusted this person's taste uh, for what was new and exciting, you know. And uh, so that got hand, handed down, you know, that came, uh, that came passed on from DJs, the DJs that you would trust. You know, we had a guy named Rick Shaw in Miami 
in the sixties. I, you know, everybody listened to Rick Shaw because he, you know, Miami was a test market, um, for your, your listeners out there have no idea what a test market is. It's uh, back in the early days of uh, radio, uh, certain cities like Cleveland and Miami and certain, not big cities, but more like, you know, the, uh, you know, smaller population, not, not the key major cities like New York and, and San Francisco and Chicago, but the smaller markets were called test markets and they would bring in new music and try it out. And back in the day, people used to call and, and, uh, request songs, you know, and the, the, the more there, the, this, this new song got a request that, you know, that got the bigger rating. And once it passed that test, then it went into, into the, the major markets like New York and San Francisco, because it was harder to get on the playlist in those markets, you know, and the way that you would get on the playlist in those markets, is if you got a, 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 a big share of listeners requesting your music in the test market. You know, we have a lot of conversations about the state of rock and roll on the podcast. And one of the things that I always bring up is it's a combination of several things. First of all, you know, it's the, it's the lack of physical connection that no longer exists in any genre of music, meaning that there's no, or very rarely does a, is a, a younger generation fan have a physical connection. They're not able to hold the art in their hand, you know, feel it, touch it, listen to it, see it, all that stuff. Coupled with the fact that there's really no infrastructure with rock music. I mean, you, you compare it to country, where country has their own channel to, to break new acts. They, you know, they have the, the, I think it's the Bluebird in Nashville, where new acts go to you know, present themselves. There's also some other things, too, as well. But what do you think is at the heart of why rock music is taking a back seat in terms of being accepted by mainstream? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. I think it's gonna. It's because it's back to solo artists. It's it's harder to market a band because you got so many different personalities, and sometimes you got the uh, the bands. You know, that fluctuate as far as the members of the band. You know, who's in the band and now and so on. And it's it's I think it's easier and quicker turnaround to focus on a single person as being the artist rather than a group. So we're basically going back to the pre-Beatle era of, uh, of bands. We're going back to the Elvises and the Chuck Berries and Little Richards and, and so on. But they just happen to be in a medium core rap, which has a pretty quick turnaround. Um, a lot of these rap artists are not really involved in the creation of the music. They just show up and do their rap over beats. And that's pretty quick. And it's very economical too. You know, you're just dealing with two or three major parties, which would be the, the DJ producer who creates the beats and then you bring in the rapper and then you got all these collaboration with different people. So it's, 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 it, it's a better investment for the label. And then you associate all other streams of revenue with like fashion and, and or brand uh, influencing, you know, influencing brands and things like that. So it's it's a whole different model than to having the the rock band. You know, I think we have, you know, we have moved on from that era. I'm not saying it's never coming back, but that's the way it is right now. And also, too, you know, you have the fan who can access someone's music on YouTube. 
any social media platform like Facebook or Twitter. You also have Pandora, you have Spotify, you've got iTunes, you've got all these platforms to access music. And I think sometimes it gets kind of swallowed up in that you can you have access in so many different ways. Sometimes people just don't know where to go. It's great for new acts in new bands that have new music because you have all these platforms as outlets to to have people digest your music. But you know, it's also like it's like social media, right? You have Facebook where it connects you to everybody, but it also has the ability to isolate you as well. Do you feel that way with music or new music today that sometimes it can become too much for the fan to take in? You know, once the Beatles transcended into that period post-Rubber Soul, you know, going into Revolver and uh, Sgt. Pepper, even though it's popular music, I think that really spawned, spawned the the era of bands not being commercially oriented just don't fall you know falling out outside of the box basically let outside of the box became what was popular music you know and i think that it needs to go go back to that stop making formula music formulaic music uh originality uh, going against the grain you know for rock bands you know don't try to don't, don't try don't try to become a tribute to something that you grew up liking or that your parents grew up liking be yourself you know be original take on the elements of what's going on today take out the take on the grab the rock elements because there's still a lot of rock elements in popular music. It's just being mixed with so, so much of the other stuff. It's almost like you take every trend that there is and put it all into one, and that becomes popular music. But if you start to like purify, by purify is mean like you know like if you take a piece of of of, of, of plain gold and you put it in the fire and you purify it and then after that all you get is gold all the other elements are are you know burnt away uh i think you're going to create something that is very original as long as it's you know again don't try to become a tribute to people that into your heroes find the hero within your own music and bring that out that's interesting uh i've never looked at it that way in terms of you know, obviously it has to be organic and it has to be natural. You know, if it's not, fans will sniff that out and they'll push back against it, right? Um, it's also a, 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 there's also the factor of having that edge. You know, we talk about the era of music back when you were in Quiet Riot and Ozzy Osbourne. It almost seems like the rock star is a thing of the past. And I don't know if that's because of the way music, rock music has evolved, you know, since then, or if it's if it's a product of the social climate now. People are afraid to say something that'll alienate half of their fan base or a large portion of their fan base. Do you think that has anything to do with you know rock music not being not being front and center like it like it used to be in decades prior? 
you know, you know, we say that the harder, because you're talking about edge now, right? I would say that the harder edge rock is coming from outside of the United States because everything is so politically correct now, uh, here domestically, you know, so it's, it's, it's creating a whole different consciousness. I'm not saying it's bad or, or, you know, better or worse. I'm just saying that it doesn't have the same edge as music coming from other countries, especially Scandinavian countries. And, uh, and you know Europe and uh, South America and, and so on. Uh, there seems to be a harder edge coming out of that, of those territories. And uh, so we'll see. We'll see how this whole thing evolves because you know each generation has their own journey. You know, I I've had mine with my generation. With, sure. I was born in 1950, so I lived through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and so on. So, you know, it's been quite a trip, but, you know, it's up to every generation to have their own journey, you know, and the music will reflect that. As we close the interview and, and end the interview, what's going on with Rudy Sarzo in 2020? What what are some of the things you're working on? Oh, well, I've been a member of the Guess Who for almost uh, over three years now, and uh, more, more of the Guess Who in 2020. Um, that's my main focus, you know, musically. Uh, I have a radio show called Six Degrees of Sarzo on Monsterfield Rock Radio. It's part of the Dash Network. And uh, it comes on Sundays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And it's four hours of talk and music. And we showcase a lot, a lot of, of the newer bands, you know, and uh, let's see what else. Uh, yeah. I got my book, like you mentioned, Off the Rails. I have a couple of uh, signature models, one with Spectre and one with uh, Sawtooth. That's an acoustic uh, electric bass. And uh, just um, having having a wonderful time making music as much as I can. <laughs> I do have to say, you know, your Monsters of Rock show is great. I, I have listened to it. Um, the episode with Randy Rose's family was was tremendous. That was that was awesome. Yeah, I was really uh, honored that they opened up the Musonia. Well, we uh, we did the show. Actually, we did it in Randy's teaching room, and I used to teach next door next to him. And, uh, and then we went over to the uh, the Argenzo Winery, uh, their tasting room in Burbank, which is uh, Kathy Rose. And uh, uh, Randy's sister, of course, and uh, and uh, the the segment uh, Sonia with with Kelly, uh, Randy's brother, and uh, yeah, they they were very very kind to uh, to come on the show. Yeah, it was what, a very very special episode. Yeah, I can imagine. What was it like to revisit, you know, all that with their with his family and in 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 Musonia? What was it like for you to to kind of go uh, back it was, to that? It was, it was a, quite a moving experience, especially at Musonia, you know, because it, you know, Randy was spent a lot of time there <laughs> teaching, you know, and I spent a lot of time next door, you know, with him, you know, so uh, in the other teaching room, you know, so yeah, it was it was very special, especially uh, memories of Dolores too. What a wonderful lady, wonderful lady, you know, Randy's mom, and uh, yeah, so it was very very touching. When you think back of that moment in your life with you and Randy teaching music, was that the moment you guys really bonded 
with each other and and and, and the, the well the yeah that was the, kind of like the beginning of bonding because prior to that i really didn't get to spend much time with with randy you know quality time you know we spend time making music but you're you're, you're making music you're playing you're not spending you know doing the getting to know each other, you know, quality time, even though you get to know each other through the music, but then there's, you know, there's another side to, to, you know, all musicians, you know, it's the, you know, being a human being, not being just being a musician, <laughs> you know, being more of a rounded individual, you know? And, uh, so that was the foundation. And then after that, of course, us going on the road that, kind of, you know, took it to another level, you know? Well, Rudy, I thank you for, for sharing, you know, some of your experiences and, and some of your stories here on the show today. I do appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much. And thank you for your listeners for tuning in. That's Rudy Sarzo. I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Thank you for listening. Have a good day, and we will chat again soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.